Um, I think we need to take a minute to celebrate Randy. I think we should. She's sitting right Publicly. here. But... Oh, she is? Yeah. No, I don't want to talk to her. I just want to celebrate. No, I don't. But you want okay, to talk to her while no. she's here? Yes, exactly. Oh, okay. I just want to make it uncomfortable you for you to be in the room with her while we are, are speaking highly of her her work and, and her, her dedication. But she can actually hear it. That's just fun, can't. right? Is that, is that uncomfortable for you? No, she can't hear it. I know. I'm that's on... perfect. Right. No. Okay. doesn't make me uncomfortable at all. It doesn't even make her uncomfortable. She's so used to it. How can we make you you and her uncomfortable right now? Um, <laughs> no, but I think we need to truly above and beyond. I would describe her as intern to the stars, but that would make us the stars. And that's just, well, that's not what we're about here. I mean, okay. We're a little bit about that. Here. We're like little stars. Yeah. Are we? Little, little baby stars. Very... We're like the stars you can buy, like the stars that you can have mm. a star named after you. We're right, like those yes. stars. Yeah, yeah. You need a really big telescope to see us. Right. We're very far but, away. But we're there. Mm -hmm. Sure. In the cavalcade of stars, that is. Right. We're Does the kind. Grow? Like, can we get bigger? I don't know. I think we're just the kind that flame out and then nobody knows about it for seven years. <laughs> 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 no? <laughs> Wow. Please, that gives us five and a half years to really start killing it with this thing. No. No, okay. So, uh, they are not the seven-year itch of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, another ad campaign. You and I both standing on subway grates. Yes. Write it down. Okay. Write it down. Um, I'd totally do it. <laughs> I already have the dress. <laughs> I have to get the dress, but that's not what's important. But let's, I, I think we really need to it is a difficult time for everybody. Yes. Nobody knows what to do. Nobody knows what the new normal is. Correct. But for our intern, Randy, that new normal is, damn it, I'm going to find you a puppeteer. Correct. And I think that needs to be uh, acknowledged. I, I think agree. it needs to be celebrated. I agree. And I think we should... I don't know. I think we should do something nice for her, but well, only after we get all of the gifts that are in our contract writers and we are required by per our agreement to get. Right. Right. I, I mean, I'm not saying we're not going to get our, you know, our beak sweat on this deal. Um, well, no, of course. No, someone's yeah, got to no, get I a taste. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's right. fair. This is why with your hosts, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. It's a weird time of year. Like we're, it's, it's it's all it, very odd. It is. And I think one thing that is sort of this return to normalcy for some people mm -hmm. is the fact that baseball is coming back. Yeah. So very very late. Like it's weird that it's coming it, back. When it it's is. Back. It is. I don't know if it's going to be interesting to watch. But I think, you know, people want that feeling that, you know, that sense of somewhere out there, there is a, there's a green field. There is a diamond. Why are you laughing? Because <laughs> somewhere out there, there's a, there's a really hot catcher. <laughs> so, oh, you're ruining it. You're ruining it. Working it's, on those hammies. 
this is America's pastime. You're making your you're desecrating it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm appreciating it. I'm appreciating the athlete, athletes in the sport. In the in the I like the rest of the players too, don't get me wrong. Right, sure. Um No, but it's sort of like it, it feels I don't know. The fact that everything is so crazy right now, I don't know how it feels about baseball with everything. You know what I mean? Like I know. But I do and I do feel baseball is America's pastime. And it is like very, I don't know. But I kind of feel like you got to be in the stands and you got to. Right. You need uh, your peanuts and Cracker Jack. Right. And you do not need to care whether you will return. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you probably should care a little bit. Yeah. At least write down where you parked. Yeah. You know what I never knew till like. Two oh, that's pretty rich. What? What did you not know? Until I two never. Years ago? <laughs> I mean, it was like four years ago. I didn't know that the seventh inning stretch was a literal we get up and stretch in the seventh inning. Is this because you grew up in England? No, but I thought, I told you I've got baseball players in my family. No, I thought that the seventh inning stretch was. No, you like, had baseball players, players throw things at your family. No, I had baseball players in my family. My grandpa was recruited, was called up to the Red Sox. Right, but then a... He played for Cocoa Beach. Like, it's not like he'd never played before. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> but... Don't get your catcher's gear in a bunch. Let's just... I know. Cool. I, know. <laughs> I wish you had a catcher's bit odd right now. <laughs> just snap it. <laughs> um, um, no, I thought that it was like... I thought the seventh inning stretch was like in horse racing, like the home stretch or like the, it's the home stretch of the game. Or I thought it was like, you're towards the end. I didn't realize it was get up and, you know. Actually physically stretch. Actually and, physically stretch. But did you realize that the home stretch in horse racing is the last, whatever number of feet it is when you yeah. run the final post? Oh, so that right. you do know. Yeah, and I okay. thought that's what they meant, like because you. Do should you know that because that was a, because that is a sport that requires you to dress up fancy and mm -hmm. drink special drinks. I went to Royal Ascot when I was a kid. Of course you did. Mm -hmm. Um Did you get to pet the winning horse? No. Okay. Were you betting at the time? Yeah, of course. I bet at the at the at, when I went to Henley Royal Regatta, which is the rowing. Like of course, this, sure, right. right. Yeah, my dad and his friend were betting, but I got to keep all the winnings, so it was great. Oh, that's excellent. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, no, I love this idea that we are having. I'm going to be laying. By the way, I guess I should should have said this at the beginning. I'm going to be laying baseball sounds all over this. That's fine. So while we're talking, you hear people playing catch and the uh, and the organ going in the background, and so while. Well, while people are participating in America's favorite pastime, you were talking about ponies and um, the Royal Regatta. Uh -huh. Can we get cricket in too? Can we just get the trifecta of Englishness? Oh yeah, I can tell you all okay. about cricket. So she goes to me, she goes, why don't you go down to the egg campus and see if they have something for groundskeeping? And I looked at my mom and I said, mom, they don't have classes for mowing grass. 
And she goes, just go down and check. <laughs> and so I did. And sure enough, I come up with, uh, I meet up with a person by the name of Dr. Love, which he wasn't a James Bond villain, but, but uh, he had a great name for that. And, and, uh, that the course, rest was yeah. history. He he ran the turf program at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and uh, I had already done half, a lot of my basic stuff was out of the way, so I only had about two years left of, of getting all the specialized stuff for turf. And got through that, and uh, within right after graduation, within a year, I was working for the Orioles. When you sit up in the stands and you watch uh, a grounds crew pull a tarp at a major league or minor league game we make it look way easier than it really is. Uh, you know, those, the, the tarps that we use, well, of course, nowadays are using more, but back when I was in it, uh, you know, our tarps weighed on an average of, of a ton. And that was, and that was, if it was clean and dry. And most of the times it wasn't, it was dirty and, and wet, which makes things worse. And uh, I mean, to show you how dangerous it was uh, in, when I was in my early years, when I was first with the Orioles, uh, this is about, I want to say, about four years into it. Uh, we had a young man. He's about 16 years old, uh, very athletic. And we were in the middle of a ball game and had a rain delay. The rain had come. We had the rain delay. Yeah. And uh, we come back out to pull the tarp off. And we line up on the tarp. And uh, I'm on the side uh, of opposite of everybody else that's pulling everybody's on one side and I'm actually on the side 90 degrees to that side. And the guy who has the problem is right on the corner behind me. So we start pulling the tarp back and I'm pulling and you know, it's full of water. So it's really, it's really a tough pull. We get about halfway out. All of a sudden I feel behind me, the tarp start going slack and I turn around and I look behind me and here he is going to the ground, clutching his heart. The kid, 16-year-old kid's having a heart attack on the field in front of all the fans and the ball players. And uh, we, uh, at, this, at this point in time, I was still the assistant head groundskeeper. Uh, the head groundskeeper at the time, Pat Sanderone, he rushed back there. He was, uh, he was a former Marine and, and, uh, or a Navy uh, person and, uh, <laughs> and knew CPR. And one of the, one of the uh, young inner city kids who was on the tarp who had just learned CPR because of his, his child. So Pat and, and that other guy went to work on, on uh, John on the ground crew who had gone down and I ran in to get the help uh, uh, from the uh, uh, ambulance people. And um, we lost them twice on the field. We revived them and lost them twice. And finally the third time we got them, we got them stable Oh, and uh, and they pulled him off, and it turns out that the, the kid had had uh, an un- a previously undiagnosed uh, heart murmur, and uh, wow. the next day he got a pacemaker put in him, and that was pretty much the end of his career on the tarp group. So wow. it just wow. goes to show you, you know, how the the amount of strain that that goes in in doing something like that. We make it look really easy. Yeah, yeah. you would never. Did the I... Orioles win? I don't remember. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> Terrible. I'm sorry. But it, was, it was pretty cool because the, the entire Mariner team, I, if I recall, went the next mm-hmm. day to go see him in, in the hospital. Yes. See, that's is, awesome. Which is pretty impressive. The opposing team going to see him at the hospital. For yeah. sure. Yeah. And it's impressive that he made it and everybody jumped in and helped. I mean, it's actually a... Oh, yeah, it was... It was 
it, it wasn't a pretty sight on the field at the time. I oh. mean, the, the stadium was just, you could hear a pin drop in the stadium. Everybody was just, couldn't believe what was happening. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Oh. But in many ways, it was the most fortunate place to have something like that when you had Absolutely. so you many got, trainers. And, well, and there's so many there. doctors in the, in the audience. Right. And, yeah, exactly. We had plenty of help once, once things got going. Yeah. Wow. Man. So, oh. so anyway, so that's, that's, you know, that's a, nor- that's a normal day on the, on the ground. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. the, more, the, more the technical work goes on when the ball club's out of town. And that's when we get into the really nitty gritty of maintaining the field. And, you know, the one thing I loved about when we moved from Memorial Stadium to Oriole Park was Memorial Stadium was very enclosed. And as, as a fan, you couldn't look in on the field. And nowadays, they, when they built new ballparks, starting with Oriole Park, we made it more uh, accessible so people could see all day long what was going on in the park. And so mm-hmm. at, at Oriole Park, you can walk along that Utah Street walkway between the warehouse and the ballpark, and you can look down any time of the day and see what the ground crew is doing on the field. Now, that has its good points and bad points. We can't do anything <laughs> as sneaky as easily as we used to <laughs> right. because we do do those things once in a while. But, what? Uh, Never. But, but, uh, but as a kid, I would have killed to be able to go up and watch a ground crew working on the ball field anytime. Mm-hmm. as an adult yeah. it is so mesmerizing like as a spectator it's like it's just hypnotizing to watch the crew work it's awesome i i often describe uh, i in in uh, 96 harry smith with cbs this morning came and did a piece on me called hey harry do my job <laughs> and i described to him you know what a groundskeeper really is is they're an artist we come out in the morning we see what the ball field looks like it's been messed up from the day before or whatever and we clean that entire field back up. We repaint the picture so that it's there for the next day. Because, you know, there's something about the geometry of not just the baseball field, but any sports field. Uh, you know, there's straight lines, there's squares, there's grid patterns. There's all kinds of things. And there's something in the human brain that is attracted to all these geometric shapes and sizes mm-hmm. out there and colors uh, that really you know, get people excited. And, you know, if I had a dime for every time somebody came up to me at the ballpark and said, Hey, I think I know how you put those, those grass patterns in the grass and they'll have, you know, they'll have another different cockamamie idea. How it's <laughs> like, <done. laughs> like, nope. <laughs> so how, I mean, obviously you actually do have to channel your love of meteorology. I'd imagine too, because yep. you have to be aware of what's happening with the weather and you have the best of both worlds. The right. best, of both, yeah. best of both worlds. Now, I didn't have all the cool tools that they got today with mm-hmm. radar on your on your cell phone and stuff like that. I would have killed for that. Um, but, you know, that's what happens when you get old. You know, <laughs> life goes on and they get the better tools, the younger generation. <laughs> so <laughs> how, did, how did you keep track of that stuff? How did you uh, well, in just, the, I mean, yeah, in the early days... In the early days, in the in the 80s, before the internet, um, you know, you called the weather service and said, hey, what's it going to do? And then you relied on what they told you. Now, we had one situation. This is as Pat was getting close to retiring. And, and so he would leave the ball game in like the seventh or eighth inning. And usually when he'd leave, he'd tell me, hey, Paul, put the tarp on. And this particular night, he decided not to, like for some reason. Or another. We were in the middle of a drought. I think this was 89. We were in the middle of a wicked, wicked drought in, in the East Coast. 
And uh, so we would do anything for a drop of water on the field, aside from the normal irrigation. There's just a big difference between natural rain and irrigation on a ball field. And so we were in the middle of a homestand, and uh, Pat left, and I said, oh, geez, he didn't tell me whether he wanted to cover or not. So I called the weather service, and they said, well, they said, we, I don't expect we'll get anything, but if we do, we might get a couple of sprinkles. And I thought, okay, well, you know, we can handle a couple of sprinkles. And so I told the tarp crew, I said, you don't have to stick around to cover up. A, you know, we'll take care of the field and get it ready to go, and we'll see you tomorrow night for tonight's game. So the, the tarp crew leaves. We we put the field to bed. I leave. I'm driving home. I get to my house, and just as I'm getting out of my vehicle, it starts to sprinkle. I go, oh, so must be more <laughs> And I, you know, walk in the house and I start undressing, getting ready for bed. And I'm listening to the rain start to pick up on the roof. And I'm going, hmm, this is a pretty good sprinkle. And I'm laying there in bed. And as I'm laying there in bed, it just starts raining harder and harder and harder. And it poured, not rained, it poured all night long, nonstop. Well, I got, remember, I'm only the assistant at this point in time. So I'm right. getting sick to my stomach. I've I physically made myself stick, sick. I'm having a I'm having a panic attack oh. in the middle of the night. I'm on the toilet. You know, I got all the problems going on that go with you know being fearful of your job. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. You don't know whether to jump out the window or whatever. And uh, so five o'clock rolls around the next morning. It's still pouring outside, and I call up the weather service for the new forecast because I know the new forecast comes in around then. And I, and I talk to them. I go, well, it looks like we're going to have rain till noon, and then the sun's going to come out. <laughs> going, oh, crap. I got Thanks, a night man. game tonight, and I'm never going to get that field ready. It's you know, This was back before the modern-day sand-based fields that drained you know, incredibly well. These were old native soil fields that they just didn't drain for, for nothing. Mm-hmm. So I, I call up. Fortunately, it was, it was during uh, the summer when, when there's no high, the kids aren't in, in school because our tarp crew is made up of high school kids. And uh, so I started calling up the kids, hey, get down to the ballpark as soon as you can this morning. So I get in there at 7. It's still raining at the time. The dugouts are flooded up to the top step on both sides. And, you know, the field there, it is wide open, just pouring rain. And I get in there and I, and I start calling for uh, all of our suppliers around the city of Baltimore for any drying agent they got laying around. I need it down at the ballpark. So... Luckily, the rain stopped about eight or nine o'clock in the morning. It didn't last till noon. And we started working on the field and pumping out the dugouts and everything. And then Pat Sandrone comes waltzing at about 930. And, you know, Pat used to tell me all these stories of his heyday way back in the 50s and the 60s, early 60s of, you know, having to pour gasoline on the, on the field and light it on fire to dry the field out. But for some reason, that morning, not one of those stories stuck in his head because he never made that mistake in his life. Of course. <laughs> and, of course yeah. Never. And, no. and he, he reamed me a new one. Oh. And uh, so we, we kept working on drying the field. I had to cancel batting practice for, for the game. And, uh, you know, we just got the field dry enough for the, for the game time. And I'm, I'm, I was just scared to death that night. And, you know, keep in mind, we got Cal Ripken out on our infield. So, because Cal plays for the Orioles. Right. And you would believe, but at the end of the game, Cal comes up to me after the game and goes, that's the best damn infield that's ever been. (laughs) 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 Because it had so much good moisture in it. He loved loved it. Right. 
So how often did you get feedback directly on all of the work you and your team did and how it related to the results of the game? I mean, I know we jokingly talked about how you guys could get, you know, blamed for everything, just like I get blamed for everything. But Mm -hmm. how often did you really get acknowledged good or bad for your impact on the game? Well, uh, most of the time, you, it, you never heard much from the players unless they wanted to complain. Uh, there was a few, very few players over the course of my career that would go out of the way to tell you, hey, this field is great and stuff like that. They just assumed that you might know that, you know, <laughs> but, but they always loved to, you know, they made, if they admit an error, there were several players that would always blame it on the groundskeeper. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and that's that was just part of the game. And I, you know, one of the toughest lessons I learned, you know, because I started in there very young. I was 25 when I was when I started that job. And uh, the toughest lesson I learned in Major League Baseball is you can't make everybody happy. You got 25 guys out there. Everybody's got a different opinion on how that feels. Yeah. So, yeah. and it was a very hard lesson for me to learn. It took me about five or six years to really, you know, not take it so hard every time I got a complaint because mm-hmm. that's just the way it was. Uh, the front office rarely ever uh, gave me any trouble about the field. Um, ownership uh, was a little bit different story. The, <laughs> the, uh, you know, we had, I had some run-ins with the ownership in the, in the later years at Oriole park with field infield color and things like that. But, you know, for the most part, it wasn't, it, it it really wasn't that big of a problem. The, the grounds crew's job is to present as uh, uh, as safe a field as you can provide the players, and and uh, you know you try to make it uh, safe and even for both sides. Because you know even if you know in the old days you say, well, we're going to do this to the ball ball field and this, you know you might have given that in a slight advantage to your team, but in a lot of cases your, your team yourself was battling that same issue, whatever you did to yeah. stop the other team from doing something. So you don't see that much mm-hmm. anymore in, in major baseball of, of, you know, trying to do those kind of things to, to other teams. How involved was MLB on a sort of regular basis, checking the condition of the field? Did they just trust that every team, you know, like you said, want what's best for their team. So they're going to put out the best product yeah. or you know, I mean, at that point, you have the Expos, and I, I mean, they were still on the Astro yeah. Turf at that time. So. Yeah, well, when I started in Major League Baseball in 85, half the teams were artificial turf. And wow. in, keep in mind that we got into the 90s was a major building boom for, for ball stadiums. We got away from the multiple-use stadiums of Three Rivers Stadium and, and uh, Riverfront Stadium and, and all these cookie-cutter stadiums that were artificial turf so that they could play both football and baseball on them. So in the building boom of the nineties of major league baseball fields, a lot of baseball only fields went in, we got back to going into uh, natural turf. Now we're just starting to see things go backwards again. Uh, I think this year, this season that we haven't started yet, uh, mm-hmm. you were going to see three new uh, artificial turf fields. We were, we got it down to as low as two for a long time, Tampa and, um, uh, what's a Canadian uh, Toronto? Chase, uh, yeah. Those those two artificial turf. Now we're starting to see three more come online this year, and I believe there's three more coming online for next year. In the in the old days, they really didn't 
come around to check. You know, we had we got checked once a year by uh, a guy who formerly worked for GE, and he was hired by Major League Baseball to go around the ballparks and check the lighting levels of the field. And then while he was there, they'd have him check the mound height, check the bases, the distance of the base and stuff. And, you know, the big thing was having him check the mound. And there were several times it was easy for me to pull the wool over his eyes that our mound might not be legal. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but so it, it was pretty loosey-goosey back then. You know, baseball, when I got into baseball in 85, it was still a game. But by 1990, it had become a business. Yeah. In that right. short five years, the first five years, and I saw a huge change in how baseball changed. And now it's it's they have their fingers in everything. Uh, for instance, back in my time, you know, we could call a game. We didn't have to call Major League Baseball to tell them every little thing we're thinking about about calling a game. And and there were many times where what I you know what I might advise the club was pretty much what they would do. Um, now you can't make a move without Major League Baseball being totally involved in it uh, when it comes to any kind of a rain a rain out, not a rain delay, but a rain out. Mm-hmm. So, but there are lots of other things that that they've become very involved in, um, if, from the grounds operation and things like that. And some of it's for the good, you know. Football, the NFL football is so much more ahead of their time in the the. Uh, the care of the field, the integrity of the field, and protecting the players. And the part of that's because their players' association is very strong, and they have they're very adamant about the condition of those playing fields and the safety of those playing fields. With every right, I mean, it's a very physical sport. These guys don't play for too many seasons. They, it's got to be as safe as possible. Baseball, right. in my opinion, is lagged behind on that. Players' association really hasn't shown much interest in that. Uh, but it's it's an opportunity where that could be taken care of because, you know, you're seeing more and more non-baseball activities taking place in these ballparks. And sometimes they butt up very close to a homestand to the point where, it, you know, it's it's a very tight time schedule for the groundskeepers to get the field ready to go in time. And, and you know, that can create some pretty shaky situations. And I, I'd like to see the, the – uh, the players association step up a little bit and take some interest like the NFL players association does and, yeah. and protect that field a little more. And then, I mean, you, in your story about first going to Wrigley is very much how I remember Fenway park. Yeah. You know, when you first walk that smell of the grass and I feel like that's, you know, any park you want to yeah. walk in that, that combination of peanuts and, and lawn. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it always has that, sense of like this is a perfect field this is the if you're gonna play baseball you want to be here this is the place how much of that is true are you guys working right up till first pitch frantically trying to get things ready or is it kind of just maintaining at that point during the season once it starts well i can speak for 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 us we used to go in on a night game a night game would be at the 7 30 i think it was we started back then uh, we would go in at seven in the morning that morning and start our job. We worked basically about a 16 hour day, but we're not working all 16 hours. You know, we're kind of like a fire department. We work about of that 16 hour days. We probably work, we work half of that time. We're working about eight hours because there's a lot of sitting around. You're kind of like the volunteer fire department. If any rain comes in, you're there. We're cheap rain insurance. 
um, right. or, or if there's other kinds of issues or problems with the field. Um, so we're not working the whole time, but you still have to be there the whole time. And that's, that's a drag. Uh, you know, when you're doing this, when you think about it, if you work a seven day homestand that goes from Monday to Sunday, uh, with Sunday being a day game, typically, if we're working 16 hour days, you know, we're putting in close to a hundred, 105 hours in a week. Uh, and you know, even if you're not physically working yourself every hour of that day, you still got to be there. You're in the heat, you're in the sun, mm-hmm. you're in the humidity. You know, if you start doing a couple tarp pulls, that really takes it out of you. I mean, you know, and, and commonly our guys are getting, you know, four to six hours of sleep at night. So you're really tapped in the summertime. I remember the first, the first year I worked in Baltimore in, in 85, we had a stretch of 18 games in 22 days at home. Ooh. And I look back at that <laughs> and I can, I cannot imagine how I, how I got through that a, because it was so long and so many hours and Man. B I was a Midwestern kid, not used to the heat and humidity of Baltimore. Baltimore is an oppressive place to live in the summertime. <laughs> Very humid, not a lot of wind. I mean, it's just, you get up in the morning, as I always tell people, you come out of the shower, you start drying yourself off. You don't finish till you go to bed that night. You're constantly right. drying yourself off. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, you know, and then being out and working in that intense sunlight, um, you know, it just takes a toll on the body. And, and mentally, you get so fatigued that your brain just kind of takes over and, and you know, and you, it, it just goes into automatic mode. And you're not really thinking, you're just doing. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's very taxing. It's, and the ground crews of today are have it harder than, than I had it because they're being asked to do a lot more than they used to do because along with all these games, they've got all these other extra activities, concerts and, you know, sleepovers and movie nights and all this kind of stuff to bring in more money into the ball club. And the ball club just keeps asking them for more and more and not giving them any extra time off or any extra pay. You know, it's a really sad statement on on how the crews are being treated, in my opinion. I'm, yeah. I'm really disappointed. Yeah. So what was it like when you'd come home after a stretch like that? Did you did you mow your own lawn? Did you take care of your landscaping? Were you like the shoemaker <laughs> who's like, nope, I'm not, I have no shoes. I'm not touching it. Uh, I'm one of those weird guys who did do that. Uh, you know, there were some times I had to have my wife at the time mow the lawn, but most of the time I tried to take care of it myself. Oh. And I kept a good lawn, yeah. So I have to. I, I got in somehow. Oh, the neighbors would have been like one thing out of place. The neighbors would have been like, really? Ooh, yeah, <laughs> something must they're be going, wrong with him. Yeah, they're going yeah. To the he must not be feeling well. Right? <laughs> What's that going to do to the season? <laughs> so now you, you, you work for a run groundskeeper, you and. With Beacon Athletics, you're offering all these courses and guides as to how to keep a good field and Mm -hmm. the things you can do and and the science behind it. I mean, it sounds like this is the kind of thing you would have killed for when you started to have that inside info on it. Well, and that that's that's another big change. You know, in in uh, the early '80s when I started going in the turf into the turf program, uh, there was no. turf program around the country that was exclusive to sports turf managers because there were very few college trained college trained sports turf managers there was a lot of college trained golf course superintendents all the turf programs were geared towards golf back then and so you had to take it and then just kind of manipulate it for for baseball but 
you know, they don't teach anything about maintaining infield skins or, or, or infield soils. So when I when I went in, first of all, I was a rare bird because I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a major league groundskeeper. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, the Sports Turf Manager Association had just formed in uh, in 1982. And uh, I was I came into that organization very early as a student. And but they didn't have any educational materials out yet because they just formed. Um, and so there really wasn't much. And I was always hungry, always hungry for information. Nowadays, you've got the Internet, Twitter. You know, every ground crew has a Twitter page. You can, They show you what they're doing. As a kid, I would have loved that stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and so there's all these ways of getting all this information. Groundskeeper you that we have at Beacon Athletics is just another another way of doing it. And it extended from when I first came to Beacon in 2000, when I left the Orioles, you know, I did uh, seminars around the country and, you know, by, by 2010, it got pretty expensive to do that traveling, uh, all that traveling and, and promotion. And we decided let's, let's take advantage of the internet and create an online training program. So that's, that's where that came from. And, you know, it allows you to get to places that you can't get to, when you're doing an in-person um, training program, like a seminar, because you're not going to go to, you know, Tucumcari, New Mexico, and you know, or a little, I used to get letters all the time from people that say, hey, I'm up here in uh, Saskatchewan. Can you come up here? We'll sponsor a seminar. Well, that's great. Who's going to come? There's right. nobody around right. there. Yeah. <laughs> so but the internet allows you to get everywhere around the world. And so, you know, that's very appealing to me to be able to, I get the biggest high out of teaching people how to how to do this craft, and uh, I I wish back when I got into it I'd had that availability of information. But it, it's so cool today to see just how much there is available to people out there now. And it's something too. I feel like I never realized how much work is required, even down to a little league field. I thought yeah. it was you throw some chalk down and you sweep off the bases and you're good to go. And that's exactly how a lot of people handle it. You know, mm, if you want no. something good, you've got to work at it. And, uh, right. you know, it's uh, the little league. When I, when I left Major League, back and I went bad backwards in my career. I started out as a Major League groundskeeper and I slid backwards into Little League. <laughs> right. Because when I, when I left Major League Baseball and I came back here to, to where I grew up here in Madison, Wisconsin, my son was just getting old enough to play Little League Baseball. So. We got involved there, play uh, Eric playing the games, and, and suddenly so they're tapping me on the back and say, "Hey, uh, we could really use your help here." And I go, "Yeah, I see that." So <laughs> I kind of got I kind of got sucked into it. And the first thing I told him is, "Well, first of all, you take care of this property, right? This is not a city park. You know, you're not you're not bringing in enough money to take care of this place." Because uh, I was shocked at how little the dues were when it, for him to play, and so I had to convince these people what it took to do it. So my last question, I've got a lawn. It doesn't have to look like Fenway, but (laughs) if it could, what, is there any piece of advice you have for somebody who wants a nice lawn? You living in the North or South? uh, North, Northeast. Um, When do you normally fertilize your lawn? Okay, so I should be fertilizing my lawn. <laughs> yeah, the dog okay. peeing on it doesn't count. 
For more information on Paul, you can follow him on Twitter, where he is at Paul Zawaska. For all of your field essentials and to learn even more about groundskeeping, you can check out Beacon Athletics. They are online at beaconathletics.com. Be sure to follow Why the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And check out our YouTube channel for some additional Great Why content. If you're so inclined, please leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Today's show was produced by myself and Heidi Hedquist. Our reluctant executive producers are John Sove and Sandy Stone. Our graphic designer is Samantha Mustonen. Our intern is Randy Jeanette. The theme song was performed by the Electrosynthno Magnetic Polyphonic Orchestra. This one's for Philippe. Thanks for joining us. Flash, we're coming home. Nigel, is that you? Are you here, Nigel?